we ended up losing 5-4. And I remember driving home. I couldn't get home because there was an avalanche both on 50 and 70. So I'm just sitting on the side of the road. It was a rough day that day. Welcome to episode 458 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Rye Marcatilio McCracken here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This week on the podcast, Christopher is joined by Doug Seacat, owner of Deeply Digital and Clear Networks, and Casey Irving, Director of Business Development. ILSR Senior Editor and Reporter Sean Gonsalves also joins the conversation. The group discusses a hard lesson learned by Clear Networks out near Ridgeway, Colorado. Around five years ago, Clear Networks won a Colorado Broadband Fund Grant to build a fiber-to-the-home network for the community, only to have it challenged by incumbent provider CenturyLink. Subsequent appeals ultimately led to a situation where CenturyLink won the sum needed by Clear Networks to build fiber to the home to instead modestly upgrade its DSL network. Clear Networks has continued to pursue its roadmap to the area and made significant progress in bringing world-class connectivity to households in and around the city. But the decision left residents in the area with subpar internet access for years after. It's a situation that speaks to the need for local officials to become conversant in broadband issues, so the same thing doesn't happen to them and the potential problems of right of first refusal policies. Now here's Christopher talking with Doug, Casey, and Sean. Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. I'm Christopher Mitchell at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in St. Paul, Minnesota, and we have a special guest today from my side. Um, so we're going to be two on two today. Our two folks uh, who are not from the Institute for Lo- Local Self-Reliance are from Deeply Digital and Clear Networks. And the first person is Doug Seacat, who's been on several years ago. Welcome back to the show, Doug. Thank you. It's good to be back. I'm excited to, to talk about what we love doing. Yeah, so you're from Western Slope. You own Deeply Digital and Clear Networks. You've been trying to solve rural broadband issues as well as um, uh, running a company that does other IT consulting type stuff, if I remember correctly. That's right. Yeah. Deeply Digital no longer does IT consulting. We just build fiber now. That's all we do. Consult, build, and, and manage the fiber networks. And that keeps you plenty busy from what I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot going on. And then Clear Networks is the internet service side of of our business and and it is very busy as well excellent so we also have casey irving who's the director of business development for both deeply digital and clear networks welcome yeah hey thanks for having me on guys no, I appreciate it. And then we have a uh, special guest, Sean Gonsalves, who reported this out for us and uh, it's out working with me on some some writing about some of the, the things that are going on in, in Colorado's mountains. Sean is senior reporter and editor uh, on my team. Welcome to the show, Sean. I'm, I'm loving it. Glad to be here. Excellent. So the first thing I think is, is Doug, can you just like catch us back up to speed? I mean, we did a half hour discussion about all the things that had happened in Ridgeway, but you know, what's your 90 second version of, of what happened in Ridgeway over five years? <laughs> and I guess maybe start with what Ridgeway is. <laughs> well, Ridgeway, it's kind of almost, you know, where we got started. I had a partner at the Clear Networks. We were um, kind of competitors, DP Digital and his company, One Track. Uh, the, the communities asked us to work together because we both were building fiber in some of the same areas. Well, he lived in the Ridgeway community and really wanted to, to do something up there. So they were one of the first communities where we started and, and they were the first grant that we went after with Dora. 
and ended up winning that grant, you know, then ended up telling everybody how excited we were and then ultimately losing it to CenturyLink. Um, they took that money and built or upgraded their DSL plant. And so, yeah, five years later, people are still have um, 25 megs approximately up there. The DSL is better there than it is in most other communities. They did definitely build some fiber to some of the DSLAMs, but our plan was to build fiber to the home and that never was done. People have DSL. There's a lot of road construction up there in the last few years. They kind of upgraded the town's road ways. And so a lot of that DSL has been cut just in the last five years. So it's it's even an older plant than it was before, um, even though it has some newer equipment. So reliability has been a, a problem. So we've continued on our quest to build fiber to the home. We just have been doing it on our own dime now instead of with that DORA funding. So it's taken us a little longer. But this last year, we've had some cool milestones. We, we built out the entire town uh, with fiber so we can get fiber to anybody downtown we've had business the business district has been covered for a while but but now we can get to most all the homes there's two communities on the north and south that we still have not fully finished but and then we also were able to we're building dp digital is building a uh, fiber link to uray which goes through ridgeway and one of the problems that we've had is um, there just hasn't been fiber to the town either so you know there's fiber there but the capacity has been to a place we couldn't provide real good service up there. So basically I just want to get back on this for one second because you guys are going after what you call the DORA grant, which is a Colorado broadband grant under a, a program that has the acronym DORA. And you did a lot of work and you put together a grant to build fiber to the home um, out for a cost of $800,000. The state of Colorado said yes. And CenturyLink appealed it. And the state said, no, we're not going to sustain this appeal. And then through sheer luck, which we covered in the, in the other podcast, CenturyLink um, had a, a second try to veto this project effectively, or to take over the project really. And, and they happened to, to have the right number of commissioners show up that had no idea what they were doing such that they thought a, um, a fiber to the home project that costs the same amount as modestly improving DSL um, to the same number of households, which they misunderstood <laughs> because they didn't read the maps correctly. Basically um, they decided that it would make sense to like give CenturyLink all of that money that it would have cost to build every home fiber to the home so that they could modestly improve DSL. And I, I have to think that whoever at CenturyLink um, really went after that challenge probably deserves a promotion. <laughs> Because that's just crazy. <laughs> well, yeah, I remember. I mean, that was kind of new to the scene with all that. And I go into those to those board uh, meetings, and and it was Centronic's attorney, you know, law firm against me. And and I, I just remember him using one example, saying he was talking about his his vacation. He's like, I have unlimited vacation where I work at at Centronic. I'm their you know attorney and telling us how. What, what a great job he had. And, and I, was, <laughs> I want to be that guy. <laughs> no, he, you know, it just, he somehow got, got the board to think we, we had maps on the screens, you know, overlaid. I had taken their map and our map, put them on top of each other. They were identical, but, but Centronic and, and this attorney was able to get them convinced that they were going to serve about uh, 1200 people where I said we were serving 536 buildings, basically. Mm -hmm. Never figured out how many people were in each building. 
Um, but, you know, we, we know that on average, it's, I think it's 2.2 is what the kind of standard is or something like that per building. Anyway, they use the people number instead of the building number. And, and the board took that. We ended up losing that appeal, the second appeal. And I walked into that second appeal thinking there's no way I can lose. Like, I'm looking at the map thinking we're providing the same service and we're providing fiber. It's, you know, they, they turned them, they denied the first appeal. So why would they in any way not deny the second one? And we, we go in and, and that attorney was able to convince, it was a 5-4 judgment. There was, it was a really snowy day that day. So I think typically the board has 15 or 18 people on there and, and there was only, you know, nine people voted. So and some of them were voting from, from remote because they couldn't get in because of the snow. And we ended up losing 5-4. And I remember driving home, I couldn't get home because there was an avalanche both on 50 and 70. So I'm just sitting on the side of the road, some avalanche to, to clear so I could go home. You know, it was a rough day that day. We, we actually were doing it for 1.1 million. And, and that was the other thing as Centronic said that they could do it for about 880,000 or something upgrading the DSL. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's remarkable when you say I could build an interstate for $1.1 million and someone says, heck, I could build a, a dirt road to more people for, <laughs> for almost the same amount of money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So one other thing I wanted to clarify, and that was that, you, um, although you mentioned the the fiber connection into town, and if I if I got it right, you you had a few customers on a fiber connection, but it really wasn't able to support um, either the the cost or the reliability or the speed, everything you wanted to do, and so you need to find an alternate path to deliver higher quality bandwidth that you would then use to connect everyone. Is that right? Oh yeah, if, you know, if I would have won that grant five years ago, we we had the way to get better internet or you know a higher capacity circuit there's fiber up there on the power poles through tri-state and centronic and zeo both have access to some of those fibers we've we've used zeo for the last eight or nine years up there through the uh, eagle net that project was built fiber to those communities um, but zeo has never been able to upgrade just the equipment <laughs> all it is is a switch the fiber is great. It's just the equipment. And Zao didn't want to do that. Centrally could do that. It's just, um, you know, we we've we were able to build fiber up there faster than we could get Zao to upgrade their equipment. And um, and then Centrelink, you know, is just extremely expensive because they knew what we were doing. So well, Ridgeway is not the only community we have that problem in either. I mean, obviously we we use their fiber and you know, the fiber is great, like Doug's saying, but sometimes it's just there's issues on yeah, trying to get them to upgrade equipment or fix equipment in certain cases. I told them I'd be happy to go swap the equipment out for them. I'd even spec the equipment, I would, you know, whatever I needed mm-hmm. to do. But um, we could not get that equipment upgraded. So that's all. I think that's really good detail. And that's actually one of the problems with having so few middle mile options available. And so I'm glad that people get a sense of that. Sean, is there anything about Ridgeway that, that you want to weigh in on, um, ask a question about before we switch to a new gear? No, I guess I just really was um, interested to know, you know, a little bit more. I mean, Ridgeway itself is a, is a rural community. Can you give us any sense of, you know, how many households per mile? I mean, how, how, sparsely populated that is and what kind of challenge that creates in terms of, uh, you know, building fiber to the home. Well, the, the town of Ridgeway is actually, I mean, it's fairly dense, you know, for rural, you know, I guess setting, if we're describing that, you know, there's some density downtown and, and some homes and some neighborhoods that are pretty close by. 
Um, I think the, you know, we estimate everything off of serviceable addresses, how many buildings we can hook up. Um, and I wanted to say that, you know, Ridgeway, we found kind of in the 800 mark um, as far as the downtown areas and the, the high density areas. But there's a lot of um, residential areas all surrounding that as well that still needed. You know, they were a lot worse off than Ridgeway was. Um, and so we've also started tackling you know, those communities as well. Communities where like there's not power poles. So it's a lot more expensive to build fiber in those areas. And yeah, those homes are really spread out because, you know, everyone up there wants to buy acreage as well as, you know, their house. So um, really neat communities. It's, you know, all, you know, mountain towns kind of area and everyone lives up there to, you know, get out and be in the um, mountains, but also needs uh, high, uh, high speed internet so that they can, you know, log in remotely from home or stay in touch with the world too. So we've been kind of tackling the communities around there as well. And part of the problem there, wireless is, is not a real good solution because of so many trees. You know, it's there's decent hills around, but to try to get good, we, we want to build um, towers where we can get fiber to. So to get a tower where it can see through the trees or over the trees is difficult. So really fiber is the best solution, but yeah, people are so spread out. And five years ago when we were doing this grant, we really did not have a relationship with the power company up there. There's the power company their stance was we want nothing to do with fiber. <laughs> and over the last few years, Casey and I and, and Region 10 and the community has, has really worked with the power company up there, San Miguel Power. And they've come around to where they've given us access to all their poles. So we're extremely excited with that relationship. Um, it's really opened up a lot of doors that are going to allow us to get the fiber outside of downtown area you know, obviously there's an expense there, but but it greatly reduces the expense and the time to get to some of these communities that are farther out of town. We're, we kind of work with DMEA in the Montrose side. So DMEA has um, started their own internet company. They're a, an electric cooperative that we've talked about before for people who are interested in looking them up, Delta Montrose. Right. And their service territory kind of ends halfway between Montrose and Ridgeway at, at Kelowna. And so Kelowna South is San Miguel. And San Miguel doesn't have any plans of doing their own fiber service. So working with us has really worked well. We're, we're getting some fiber to some of their, you know, because their, their customers are asking them why they're not doing stuff like DMEA. And uh, their stance is they would prefer to support small business and, and so they're they're working with some other ISPs as well, but we're predominantly the, the largest that they're working with and really have plans of serving the entire county of Uray um, at some point on their polls. The utility that you mentioned um, with, with the polls and the relationship that you've developed, what was what was it that about that relationship? I mean, that that kind of brought them around. Was it the relationship itself getting to know you guys or was it, you know, some some other factors that that really made them say, hey, let's, uh, let's work together. I think it's been a very slow burn for a while there. And then, um, you know, we were just forming relationships with them, like, you know, begging and pleading, can we please have access to these polls? You know, we're going to do it the right way. You know, we were kind of viewed as maybe like the small guys who didn't know much about, you know, poll access or putting stuff up there, mounting it correctly. And, and so that's, I think, what their concern was. But, you know, over time, we started proving ourselves to them. We got access to a little bit at a time. And you know, kind of proven forming relationships over there, talking with them about the solutions we're trying to implement and working with the communities and getting the communities involved and, you know, um, kind of bidding on our behalf. Um, and then, you know, I think one of the biggest breaking points too we got to is um, at the start of COVID, um, 
there was a bunch of students who needed access to internet up in the Norwood area, which is another one of their service territories. And um, there was no internet up there. I mean, the entire town was fed by a wireless uh, link into town. Um, and that's how CenturyLink got their feed and then provided DSL. And it was terrible, like maybe tops five megs in some cases, but most people are getting like between one to three megs of download speed. I mean, San Miguel recognized the need, like we were trying to develop fiber up there at that time. And so they said, Hey, whatever you guys need, we're going to help you out with. And they kind of gave us free access to go put stuff on the poles, get it out to um, some wireless towers that we felt like could feed an area with high speed internet. And then also building out fiber to some of the students and teachers. So um, at that point, it's like, you know, it was, definitely a big change in our relationship. And it was super helpful that they were able to just, you know, kind of let go and say, listen, you're going to figure this out for these kids, go do what you need to do. And we'll figure stuff out on the back end. And we were super appreciative of that. Yeah. We're going to come back to that and talk about the schools. And um, before then though, I wanted to ask, I'm really curious about the second uh, application for a Dora grant after that first experience, <laughs> what it took and and what your mindset was and um, just in general to go back into that program after that experience. I'd like to start off by saying that like Doug and I stayed up till one in the morning writing that grant, the very first grant. We didn't know anything about grant writing. We were going up against all these people who were paying, you know, you know. Yeah, but you can't go to sleep at 1201. You're, you're amped up still after that. <laughs> no, it was due at 12. So we got it in at 12. Yeah, we got it. Yeah, but that's what I was saying. Then you got to go out for a drink. You got to, you got to well, wind down a little see. bit. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it took a while. We were reading through and making sure we spelled everything correctly at that point. Oh, that's that's more effort than a lot of people give from what I can tell. <laughs> we were asking for a million dollars. I didn't even know what that, I mean, at that time, what, what was a million bucks? Yeah. That was a lot of money to us. And we spent some time. It was, you know, just us. Obviously, the other guys, some of them hired, hired consultants or yeah. Centrally. We were going up against all these consultants who knew what they were doing. And, you know, we just felt like the little guys. So we were thrilled when we got the application. Obviously, it's just, you know, and a crash coming down from essentially writing an application for someone who didn't even apply and handing them all that money that a competitor. So, so the second time, what happens? <laughs> well, it took me a couple of years to decide. I mean, I think Casey maybe talked me into it. I was like, I'm tired of this. We'll go find our money somewhere else <laughs> because I felt like we were designing it and there's no guarantee that we're going to get it. It's like you're handing it to your competitor and I felt like the same thing would happen. Now, let me, sorry, let me jump in for a second, because I do want people to know that that's not the case today now. I mean, it's still, you're still at a disadvantage, but like Colorado, because of you guys, Colorado improved the language so that if a company wants to steal a grant from someone like you, they have to hit the same price point and they have to use the same technology. You have to deliver the same capacity, at least. And so that, that was an improvement, at least. So, I mean, your suffering did lead to benefits for other communities. Yeah, yeah, that definitely highlighted a weakness there. <laughs> they worked through it, and and we're excited now. It works better. Centralink has not really even been a participant in the last few rounds. And well, sorry, I mean, like, I'm just gonna keep, I'm just gonna keep being rude, but like, people need to understand at this time, Centralink is cashing checks from the federal government every month that add up to a total of more than three billion dollars over six years. And, and they're like trying to take grants away from you guys from like $1 million. I mean, it, it's just unreal to me how they just exist to cash checks from poorly designed grant programs, it seems like. And then oh, anyway, I just want to make sure people understand that like it's not like CenturyLink's business case like <laughs> rose or fell based on screwing you over. <laughs> I don't think it's as much for them getting the funding that we're getting is stopping us or slowing us down because mm – -hmm. We are being 
pretty pr productive and effective of where we go. If, if we bring in fiber against their DSL, they, they don't have a lot of a, you know, much of a chance. So us having to fund it ourselves just slows us down. It gives them another three to five to eight years of profit before we take their customers. So I think it's less of them getting the million bucks as much as slowing us down from that. Sure. So you, you did go for a second grant then. What happens? Yeah, actually, the second grant was pretty close. It was a region called Log Hill, which is north of um, Ridgeway. And that was one of those communities that I mentioned earlier that's all underground. You know, they're, all the homes are really spread out. Um, there's like the grant total had about 542 homes in it. And gosh, I, I mean, just looking at the map, it's it's an immense area that we have to cover with underground fiber. So that was the second application we put together. Um, and actually, the first time it was denied, apparently it didn't meet the minimum requirements. But we appealed that decision. Um, this grant has uh, an appeal option. So we went back to the board and had the chance actually to present in front of them at that point and say, hey, these are the reasons why we feel like this area is underserved. And we showed them, you know, this is what's up there, CenturyLink and a couple of wireless providers. Well, it's not even wireless. You can't, the trees are so big. There are very, very few people can see wireless. So it was really denied because of CenturyLink showing that it served the area. But there's a map that everyone reports to to show what speed areas, you know, what areas are in need of broadband services. And the concern with, you know, the board and the concern with pretty much every provider who applies for a grant is CenturyLink just puts all of their areas to serve. Hey, we provide over 25 by three speeds here. There's no need for a grant. So we had to go in and provided, you know, close to 60 speed tests, I think, from all the residents in the area. Uh, letters of support, people just, you know, emailing the board saying, hey, you know, I'm supposed to get 10 megs per second. That's the highest they can provide me. And I get, I'm lucky if I get three to one, you know, just all that kind of stuff. We ended up winning that application um, and we're in the process of building that out right now. So this, in some ways, I think maybe restores your your faith a little bit. Um, and and I want to move this into the discussion about about the schools, which you were mentioning uh, with Norwood. But um, you know, when we were talking about something else, you Casey, you jumped in and, and we're talking about your approach to how you think we should be, um, you know, using subsidy money that is going to make sure that kids have connectivity outside of schools. A lot of that money came about during the pandemic. Um, just tell us how you got there and what your how your model works, like how you developed it. So yeah, there was a, a grant that came about sometime back in uh, November of last year um, that school districts were actually the only people that could apply for it. And it was called the Connecting Colorado Students Grant. It was part of some of the stimulus money that had made its way down from federal down to the state and ultimately into the Colorado Department of Education. Um, at that time, there was only about $2 million in the fund. And we reached out, talked to a couple school districts in the area, um, and just kind of vaguely talked about concepts with them. But um, nothing really came of that. And uh, eventually they ended up adding another 20 million to that fund um, and making it available to apply for again in December. Um, so that time we reached out again and really went over our plan with uh, specifically three school districts and then tried to get some other ones involved. But um, the deadline was so short for those um, applications because that money had to be spent by a specific date and actually handed out to schools, I think by February of 2021. So they were basically putting out maybe a week or two before it was due. And just to jump back for a sec, in um, the beginning of the pandemic, um, there was a few communities that we were actively building out that needed um, better connectivity. So Norwood was one of those, um, you know, the rural parts of the Norwood area, but Telluride had the same issues. Ray, Richway, you know, had similar issues. So 
since we were actively developing in those communities and all the students and teachers had to go to remote learning, some, well, again, we mentioned we worked with SMPA, but the Ted Foundation also contacted us and asked if we could work with them on a program to try and get some of these people connected. So they came up with some funds for us to go and build out infrastructure in areas that didn't have um, any high-speed internet. I mean, CenturyLink, one to three megs per second. So we put up wireless towers. We built out fiber infrastructure to those towers. We also built out fiber infrastructure to homes and students who we could reach with it. And then- uh, In under about two months. Right. It was very quick. We ramped up very quickly with, I think at that time we had, you know, probably 30-ish people working for us and maybe like two installers. And we ramped up really quick to do, I mean, it was close to 200 installs within a month. I think, to try and get everyone connected. And then we provided a lot of those students in partnership with the Terra Foundation a year of free internet. So students and teachers who didn't formally have access to internet, we gave those guys a year of free internet. So we thought it was great. It was a great program. It worked well because we got infrastructure out in areas that were underserved. We were able to hook up other people. So it was a benefit to us, you know, as a company. But it was also a huge benefit to the students and teachers because they got reduced cost internet um, and they got internet for, you know, replacing their CenturyLink DSL. Um, and it was long-term was the biggest thing. The programs that we did in mantras were not that way. Um, we tried reaching out to the school district, but it just didn't, you know, the time didn't fall together and we didn't maybe talk to the right people. What happened in mantras was basically a free installation and two months of free internet service. And that's what us and the local power company DMEA was also doing. And I were like, I mean, that's kind of nice because I guess, you know, you can get hooked up, you get maybe better internet, but the people who were really affected by that, it's not that they didn't have access to internet, it's that they couldn't afford the internet. So maybe kids who were on free and reduced lunch or families that were you know, financially um, restricted from internet access, but two months of internet didn't make a difference. The school year obviously lasts longer than that. And so once the two months were up, no one could afford it, they'd have to cancel the internet service. We ended up just extending it. I and mean, we just said- yeah, just if, if free internet. People would call and be like, well, I can't afford you know, the next few months, so I'm just gonna cancel. We'd say, okay, now you can just have the internet for free. But ultimately, this grant came about. So we talked to um, the Montrose County School District, um, which is our hometown where we operate. We talked to the Norwood School District, and we talked to um, a town that we have a public-private partnership now with to develop broadband in, which is Bayfield. And we got them to go after quite a bit of funds, about $2 million, I think $2.1 million in total of all the school districts. And our plan for them was, whatever money you apply for, we're going to take that money, go expand it into areas that are low income and don't have access to high-speed internet. Um, and then we're going to match that on the back end with free internet service. So you give me 700,000, I'm going to go build fiber as you know best as I can for as little cost as I can into these communities, get people hooked up with fiber internet. And then because you gave me 700,000 to pass all these students and then also hook up other people, I'm going to match in 700,000 of free internet for students and teachers. So we ended up putting together a um, few programs. Basically, we had priority addresses, which were free internet through 2024. So we're creating a long-term fiber internet solution for those students. But that was also a free install. And then any other students and teachers within these fiber zones that we designated, you know, these are areas we're going to go build out with fiber. We gave a $10 discount uh, off their monthly internet service off of any fiber internet plan they wanted, and then a free installation. So we were offering, you know, fiber internet, 200 megs per second for like 45 bucks a month um, and free internet or uh, free installation. Um, and we're in the process now we've, you know, got that plan developed and we're rolling that out with the school districts. Um, as we speak, we're kind of ramping up our um, finishing up our design and permitting phase and moving into construction, trying to get all these zones lit up this summer um, and get everyone hooked up before the fall. 
there's some people that get free service through 2024. There's some people who get it for like one year, although you're pretty like as long as your capital costs are covered, you guys can be pretty generous with making sure people can stay on. Like just for a second, like how do all the different costs work exactly? The way that the funds had to be spent because they were part of the stimulus money, the money had to be expended by January 2022. So again, the best way to do it, we felt like was infrastructure. You give us the money up front, we're going to use all of that money to go build infrastructure. And that was how the grant could be used. We could go and expand it into areas that didn't have service. And then Clear Networks is just going to create programs on the back end. As a benefit to the school district, we're just going to create these programs to help out students. The first program, which we're calling priority addresses with the school districts is basically, hey, you have kids who are financially not able to access the internet. And you tell us who those people are, we're going to give them free internet access. So we set up forums, we set up marketing, we're doing door hangers, basically advertising throughout all these zones and, um, you know, direct mailers, people from the school district are going in and, and telling people, hey, go fill out this form. The school district verifies for us who is on maybe free and reduced lunch or who's a priority address dependent on their financial situation. They provide that list to us and say, go hook up these people. And then we're giving them free internet all the way through 2024. The second major program that we had was the $10 discount. And that just applies to any member of the school district. So you're not financially challenged, but you still want internet access because, you know, who doesn't need that um, when you're either a teacher or staff member or even a student. Um, So they all get a free installation and $10 off uh, their monthly bill for any fiber internet plan. That program also lasts through 2024. And we mentioned to the school district, but we're really looking for ways to um, find ways to extend this. You know, there was other interested parties and, you know, who doesn't want to help out students and teachers? So we so- <laughs> I can name a few <laughs> national companies <laughs> Yeah, now in 2024 who maybe wants to like, you know, give more to the program and maybe we can expand it. And that's what we're looking to do is, you know, it creates a long term Internet solution, reliable and affordable Internet solution for um, students in our area. And we feel like it works really well for both us as the, the internet company and the, the students and teachers in the school district. So we're, we're happy and excited to try and expand that. So you guys have used that program creatively, but others have been much less ambitious with that kind of program, right? Using the same, same source of funds. All we're doing is asking for payment up front and then we can extend it farther. So we've done that over the years. When we were first got started, we'd have companies give us $10,000 built to their building and then give them internet back over a period of time or something. And it's kind of the same way as, Hey, just pay us up front for the next three years, let us go build stuff. And then we'll give you internet for that period of time. And it works well in this situation because there was so much money in that fund. It was hard to expend that much money in nine months or whatever they, the, the government gave the schools. So so that's fine. You know, give us the money now. Let us go build, and we'll we can extend it. And I, before that, that the first phase we kind of did that, um, but we didn't fully understand it at that time. It was more give us the money, and we were kind of we were building just out of necessity. There was nothing there, so we were just building it. You know, now we're saying, well, give us this money and let us extend it for you over a period of time. And I think some of the other school districts have not realized that they didn't see it. So they only asked for maybe a hundred thousand dollars to give their students internet for you know six months. It was a fairly complex plan. And when we pitched it, you know, we're pitching within a week of having to apply. So it's hard, you know, some of these school districts for one, they're not thinking in terms of broadband. They know it's an issue, but like, you know, to come in and just hit them with, Hey, we want you guys to go after a million dollars and you're going to give it all to us. And then we're going to give you the school program. Sometimes it's a little hard to like, you know, bring 
around to that. Luckily in all the areas we've operated in, you know, we have relationships with those guys. They know us because we've been working in this community and providing solutions and we've helped them figure out some of those things that they've needed. So it was a little bit easier, but it took us a little bit to get everyone up to what we were thinking. Here's our plan and why we want to do it this way. Um, and then once they kind of understood, then it was, you know, it was a snowball effect from there. They were really excited about it. They're like, great, let's do this with it. And can we, you know, add this on and, and how does this all work and stuff? So um, they wanted to work with some of the other ISPs too, but the other ISPs didn't understand it. And we weren't going to go explain it to the other ISPs. <laughs> <laughs> so they have additional funding that is setting there right now that I believe they're not sure how to use it hundred percent. So we're hoping we can prove to them, Hey, look, this worked for us. And, and can we use some of that ec- extra money that you have just set in there to, you know, to expand what we're doing? Yeah. We talked to the state, you know, um, a little while after we had just developed this program, just talking with them about other, some of this, you know, stimulus money that's coming down and just kind of filled them in on, Hey, we're doing this cool program. They're like, Oh, that's super. Yeah. No one's doing that. Like the only thing we see providers using this funding for right now is basically just, we buy internet service, monthly internet service. So I charge $50 for internet service. The school district is going to give me $50 a month for a student A, B, and C. But like Doug was saying, it's really hard to find that many students that you can just hook up and then connect all the way through January. And then that's when the program ends. Like, why not make it go further? And why not put some of that burden on um, the ISP who's already building out throughout that area to go identify those people and, you know, help them notify that you've got a cool program, cost savings that you, you can take advantage of now. Yeah, and I think in this case, we're all giving a little bit. The school's helping, the ISP, the, you know, the private partnership, and then the public, you know, the, the grant. So we all have a little bit of skin in the game. It's not just the government paying for internet. There's a lot of excitement around broadband these days. There's a lot of talk in D.C. Presidents talking about the American Job Act, $100 billion investment in broadband infrastructure. There's the Accessible Affordable Internet for All Act, $94 billion. There seems to be a massive infusion of federal investment coming, but there is this argument out there that says all of that amounts, all this federal subsidy amounts to overbuilding and that it's that government shouldn't be subsidizing local networks and the building of these kind of infrastructures. And, and on, on one level, you know, you can sort of see, well, when it comes to municipal networks, you know, people making the argument that, that government shouldn't be giving them the advantage versus private companies, but you guys being in a, a, a private company in a unique situation, I'm interested to hear your reaction about this whole issue of overbuilding and whether or not subsidies have an important role to play in, in, in ensuring, you know, we build this broadband infrastructure far and wide. I think there's a couple of things. For one, we know this area better than anybody else. So if they will partner with local people that understand it, you just give money to CenturyLink and they don't understand it like they do. The people that work for CenturyLink that live here do, but they don't really get to make those decisions where we, we are the guys making decisions right here on this table and we know what's needed in the area. So putting it into local smaller businesses, I do think is important. We've always said, and which is crazy, but almost every job that we've done, um, grant project that we've done, we've, we've um, also included open access fiber. And we believe that that keeps us honest. So yeah, we want to own the fiber, but there's always 12, 24, 48 strands of fiber that is open access that we either give to the community or the, um, you know, someone local, the government locally, so that they can use it. We call it an insurance policy. If we're not doing our job, they can always light that up and do something with it. And that keeps us honest. We don't want them to use it. um, And we try to do our very best so that they don't use it. But 
I think that's helped grease the wheels a little bit too. Like they, they don't feel like they're just giving a bunch of money to some local guy that's making a, you know, a bunch of money that we're really in it as a partnership to get it done. That first, that Dora grant was the first experience of grants, but since then we've really learned from that and really as a small business brought in almost $15 million now, probably of grant funds. And most of that has some open access component to it. And, you know, we're just continually growing our network and providing really good service, but at the same time, having that open access. And I think someday all these networks will have to start combining. It just doesn't make sense to a bunch of little guys. But I think that's where the DORA could improve a little bit is there, there needs to be a little bit more of a standardization of how that network's built. When they give us a million bucks, I believe my million bucks is being spent better than some of the other million dollars in the, in the state. And, you know, maybe there's other guys doing it better than us too, but, but there's, there should be some standards there that when we get done with this project, it's going to be a really nice fiber network that someday could be ran by a larger company if, if needed and all join together. I'll just uh, say that I, I don't know that I just, I agree entirely about the, uh, um, the need for consolidation necessarily. I feel like there are like 700, um, rural electric co-ops that I think really run really well because they're run locally. And I, you know, I would just say that I feel like, you know, companies like clear networks, I would hope are don't feel pressure to combine, um, for unnecessary reasons. Um, because I feel like having that local and I'll just say, I mean, like what really resonated with me of what you just said there, Doug, is that like, yeah, the thing that pisses me off about people talking about overbuilding in DC is like, these are people that like grew up on the East coast. They went to East coast schools and they look at a map in DC and they're like, see, like this town Ridgeway already has broadband. I can tell because FCC collected data from CenturyLink that says it does. And it would be inefficient for us to give money to these clear networks guys because there's already service all over the place. They told us there was. And it's just infuriating because, yeah, like we need these local voices. So um, like there will be some consolidation, I'm sure. But like we, we need to preserve that local rootedness, I think. Well, and I think what I was talking about with consolidation is there's a couple other small companies, you know, you, you got to have a little bit of a mass to provide the services that are needed, I guess. Like if we're all just running on small micro tick routers and just not, you know, at some point I need enough customers to provide a really good quality service. Right. So I think, I think there needs to be some uh, standardization and, and consolidation, but I'm, I agree hundred percent. I don't want a lot. I don't want one big company like um, the, the co-ops are very used to no, no uh, competition. They don't understand competition. I mean, we have changed and built and grown inside. Of, DMEA has all the money that they need, and we are still thriving. We have probably a larger uh, employee base than they do and a, a larger territory. We have less customers, but um, they were able to build very fast because they had a lot of money up front and they have infrastructure already in place. We will over time, you know, compete with them on, on a size level, but and and a service. And so they only offer a certain set of services. You know, they're not real flexible because they've never had to be. I mean, they offer power. That's what I do. It's 110 or whatever. The power is what they've actually adjusted their plans to meet what we've done um, so that they can be competitive with us. And well, and that's a great like the school grant is a great analogy of that. I mean, we you know, our biggest hurdle is a lot oftentimes um, access to upfront funds. We need to go build out this area, but, you know, we don't have the funding just on hand to go build that out, whereas DMEA doesn't. And it puts us in two different situations where we decided to come up with a program 
that helps bring funding into us to go build out low-income areas that maybe are struggling with getting access to fiber internet, and it benefits the school district, and it benefits the student and teacher long-term, and they're just different mindsets, right? If I don't need that funding, I'm not going to develop that program, and it's kind of happened time and time again. You know, when you're put in that situation, we're just developing, we're creating open access grants, whereas we see power providers are not because they don't have that need to. And I, you know, I think that the local co-ops are great because it is a lot better than CenturyLink, right? But, you know, there is a different mindset there and that I think we've noticed it can be, we're very cautious of at this point because we do see the state and other people getting really excited about the local co-ops too. And there's definitely some caution from our standpoint of like, let's not end up in the same situation where we don't have an insurance policy. You know, most of our projects do have an insurance policy that we talk about if if I stop doing a great job in two, three years, eight years, and you need a different provider, you have that option. You have that ability to bring anyone in who's not going to have to overbuild right on top of us. They can just utilize the fiber that's in place. So um, Your DMEA will not sell to us. Like CenturyLink, at least I can go buy fiber to get to the next town if I wanted to. DMEA has said no. And so we'll have towers right next to DMEA fiber that we cannot use. And that that fiber was built with co-op money and or with grant money. So we're not going to be that way ever. <laughs> and I think no, I a hundred percent agree that we should not overbuild and that does bug us. But at the same time, I mean, like right now that they gave grant funding to a, a Denver company to come build fiber in two communities that we already have fiber. in. I obviously don't like that, <laughs> but, but at the same time, you know, having some competition in those communities is probably good. I think we're awesome. So they don't need competition, but at the same time, someday, you know, maybe we're not as cool as. And it's proven well. I mean, we're competing in those, those communities where we didn't get grant funds. We built it out ourselves, but the community likes us better because maybe we're the local guys or we answer the phone, you know, when they they call and we say, Hey, how can I help you? Can we fix your internet faster? Can we, you know, get your Mm -hmm. insulation a little bit quicker? So yeah, you start competing on those levels of, of service versus just, you know, I can provide faster speed or I have fiber and this guy doesn't. And, you know, definitely the co-op mindset is I have power and this guy doesn't. <laughs> cautious of that spreading to the, you know, the internet side as well. As we wrap up, I just want to get a quick question in Doug, which is, Doug, when you were um, making the comment about like getting a little bit bigger, like what is that scale? Is that like 10,000 subs, like 15,000 subs, 30,000 subs? Do you have a sense of, of where you sort of cross that line to hitting that efficiencies that you're looking for? We put a uh, goal in our own business here to get hook up 3,000 customers this year, um, which is a big task. I mean, that's a lot of customers every single day, but you know, we have more employees than we should because we are two companies. We're out there building fiber as well. So that fiber building company needs employees. Um, I really think that you can provide a pretty good service anymore um, with not a tremendous amount of employees. And that's really the cost. How many employees is it going to take to run a, a, a really good network? And fiber networks don't require a lot of maintenance. Our wireless does, <laughs> you know, we're, we have about 72 towers too. So we have a lot of wireless customers. And once you get into residential, whether it's fiber or wireless residential customers, just, you know, have more wireless issues inside their home or iPad issues or virus issues and that sort of thing. You know, I definitely think it's more on the mix of if you're, we used to almost be hundred percent business. So now we're probably 50, 50. Um, when it was all business, we had very little customer support. Now that is 
residential. There's more customer support. I need more employees. So I need more customers. And my customers are a lower cost per customer as well. Anyway, so I believe if we can hit that 5,000 customer mark, that's where it starts becoming a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. Um, We're already able to buy quality equipment. You know, it's just, it is a little tough when a router is $20,000 or $30,000 for a router. You know, that's a big chunk and you need at least two of them. (laughs) And and, and in other areas, you need more of them, you know. So we're hoping that five to the five to ten thousand, you know, customer is is kind of gonna be our sweet spot. And we'll we'd like to go from there too. But if we can hit that five thousand and then move from there, we're excited to do that. I think you're gonna hit it. (laughs) I think the key for us has always been like having the right people on board to make sure you can support, maintain, and grow. So we have communities that want we you know want us to bring fiber internet access into their region. And in order for us to do that, I don't want to be the central link of that community where it's like throw fiber in there. And then if they call, I'm like, well, I don't know. Is there fiber near you? Like, I just don't know the area. So we want to have a good team that has the right information, that has the right people. And in order to have that team, in order to grow efficiently and to still be a solid internet provider that provides reliable service and you know great technical support or, or great billing support. Um, it's just having a a certain number of customers in order to maintain that staff, I think for us, this has been great. I mean, we've gone a little bit long, but I feel like there's a lot of really good details in here that we often don't hear about the reality from the ground. So I really appreciate you guys taking the time today. Thank you, Doug. Thank you, Casey. Thank you. Thank you guys. Thank you, Sean. Thanks for having me this time. That was Christopher and Sean talking with Doug Seacat and Casey Irving. We have transcripts for this and other podcasts available at muninetworks.org slash broadbandbits. Email us at podcast at muninetworks.org with your ideas for the show. Follow Chris on Twitter. His handle's at communitynets. Follow muninetworks.org stories on Twitter. The handle's at muninetworks. Subscribe to this and other podcasts from ILSR, including Building Local Power, Local Energy Rules, and the Composting for Community podcast. You can access them anywhere you get your podcasts. You can catch the latest important research from all of our initiatives if you subscribe to our monthly newsletter at ilsr.org. While you're there, please take a moment to donate. Your support in any amount keeps us going. Thank you to Arnie Hughesby for the song Warm Duck Shuffle, licensed through Creative Commons. This was episode 458 of the Community Broadband Bits podcast. Thanks for listening. <laughs>